I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today and recognize their continuing connection to lands, waters, and communities. We pay our respects to elders past and present. I've always wrestled in some way um, with this deep desire to make a contribution um, to community, state and country. And there's been all types of ways that's played out, but fundamentally it comes down to helping people. Hello, my name is Caroline Gurney, the CEO of Future Generation. Welcome to Twofold. Today's guest needs no introduction, but I'm going to give one anyway because he's done some incredible things in his life. I'm talking about Mike Baird, the 44th Premier of New South Wales. Mike used to be an investment banker, then almost became an Anglican minister, then went into politics where he reached the heights of New South Wales Premier and Treasurer. He then returned to banking, becoming a top executive in National Australia Bank, and he's now Chief Executive of Hammond Care at Aged Care Group. He's also found time to be Chair of Cricket Australia and of Future Generation Australia, which, of course, I'm incredibly pleased about. So, Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Carol. Great to be here. It's been a long time ambition to be on this podcast with you. Oh, fantastic. Thank <laughs> you. So, let, I just really want to look at your career. Mm. And, um, you know, you were very much ahead of your time and you've had a very non-linear career. And, um, you know, before that was even a thing, and I'd really like to get to that. But first of all, I really want to ask you something that we ask all of our guests. This podcast is to, called Twofold um, because at Future Generation, our purpose is twofold. So for you, what is your main purposes in life? Well, it, it probably is twofold. I, I would say I've always wrestled in some way um, with this deep desire to make a contribution um, to community, state and country. And there's been all types of ways that's played out, but fundamentally it comes down to helping people. Like, you know, how can I help people? be in vulnerable circumstances or leaders that, that I have the privilege to work with to make them the best they can be. But the opportunity to contribute, to improve community, state and country has been a big driver. And then on the other side, I want to be the best husband, father and potential grandfather uh, that, that I can be. Yeah, for me, yeah, those that are closest to you and special, they're they're not just part of you, your bio, you know, being a husband, you know, and a father. It's this rare privilege and treat and opportunity. So how do I balance all of that? Well, those two things have kind of been a guiding principle in my life. So let us go back to politics because obviously it's been a really large part of your life being involved um, in politics. And I'm really interested, you know, what do you think of politics now? Well, I, I have to say, I'm one word gets mine disappointed. I I think a whole range of circumstances. It's not just the the leaders' um, fault or the reason we're here. I think social media's played away. Um, I think particular leaders globally have kind of taken approaches to politics that are divisive, and um, us and them at every single day and moment and media appearance. But the biggest thing to me is political leaders that don't do what they know is right or what they believe in. And, you know, that invariably means that 
people are managing to try and win elections. They're stoking division for that aim because they're either trying to drive support in their base or they're trying to drive people away from, from opponents. And I think we've lost something. I think we've lost, you know, that great capacity, you know, what is needed for our country. You know, how do we create an environment that gives all the best opportunities for our kids? Obviously, education is something. I, I look at aged care. It is very clear at the moment that dependent on your postcode, you're not necessarily going to get the quality aged care that you deserve. That they're the sort of issues that should be driving our leaders. And, you know, dare I say, working together at times. And of course, there'll be differences. But, you know, when I look at um, politics, that lack of conviction in leaders, uh, the lack of consensus building. And, you know, I go back to people like Bob Hawke and Paul Keating and some of the significant economic reforms that were done. And all types of stakeholders came together for good off country. And, you know, that to me is something that's missing. And then you couple that with, you know, the rise of social media, the coalescing of those that are against various government decisions or policies, um, that creates a very angry, uh, noisy place. And, you know, most of my time at politics, it was all types of people that were upset on all types of issues. Um, the challenge becomes when they overwhelm you to the tune that you can no longer, you know, focus on. Um, the policies that I think the government leads, but it comes right back down to a, a, a leader or a group of leaders, you know, in a, in a cabinet context that are determined to do what is right and what is for the good of country and or state. Um, you know, that's sort of feels like it's missing. I remember when you quit in 2017. Do you, I mean, tell us about why why you actually decided to move on and go go back into banking, but that wasn't an immediate decision. But do you wish now that you'd stayed? Like, do you think that you could have had, you could have got through more change and more support for the communities? No, I'm not not for a moment. If I thought that, Carol, I I haven't looked back, you know, for a moment and said I wish I was still there. I I think across many fronts, it was almost the perfect time. And, you know, if I, if I go back to the decision, I always thought that, you know, having been an observer of politics and then a participant, that there many politicians, indeed most politicians, stayed well beyond um, their expiry date. They always became institutionalised. It, it became almost a career. I always viewed it as a chance to contribute, um, to try and shape and change and then go and do something else. Um, I certainly didn't want to become institutionalised in, in politics. And I ended up being there 11 years. But I, I think there are probably three things that, that really impact me at that point in time. I mean, the first is I always um, had this deep sense and desire to make sure that you know, the person in front of me, the issue in front of me, you know, the community need in front of me was you know, that's at the time I was looking at it or dealing with it, that was the most important thing in the world. And, you know, that often involved very difficult circumstances. Remember in the, the Lint Cafe siege that, you know, the loss of Tory and Katrina and engaging with their families, that that has an impact. You, you, you connect with them personally and you feel the pain. And when you do that, I mean, that's obviously a significant event, but there are many events that you don't see anything about um, that, that government leaders are engaged with and doing, um, that if you're 
personally giving of yourself and connecting into grief and pain, you know, that has an impact. So by the time I got to, to the end of my period as, as Premier, um, I realised when people came along in those situations, I wasn't feeling it. There, there was a numbness to it. So, you know, to, in order to be authentic and connecting and engaged, you know, with all of those people and community groups in pain and communities in pain, whether it be floods or fires, you know, you, you're giving yourself, say you should, that's the role. But I realised once, if I become numb, you know, I'm I'm not able to do the job. And there's also a self-protection in that. You're It's having an impact on you beyond what you um, can capably deal with. So, so that was one. The se- second, like I'd certainly... Uh, before when I became treasurer, I put a list of everything I wanted to achieve with the, the, the chance of being, you know, a minister in this context of treasurer in government. I had a long map of everything I could ever think of, and I went back to that list. And not only have we we ticked everything off, but many more things. Um, I feel that what I'd set out to achieve, the big part was infrastructure, but it was also kind of recalibrating, you know, budgets in the context of helping uh, the vulnerable. And we've done a huge array of things in that. Um, so I, I felt that I'd achieved everything I'd set, you know, myself to do. And then the last was just the personal. Um, it takes a toll, not on you, just you, but your family. There were many difficult situations uh, in the family. And indeed, my sister was unwell, my mum and being diagnosed with a terrible disease. And, you know, that was weighing heavy on me and, you know, my kids for a long time and had to carry us and um, there were various circumstances where it was quite graphic, the, the, the pain that they had to go through because I was a, a public figure. So all of those things made it very clear and I, I wrestled with it. My wife and I went away for a weekend in, in early January and we said, no, no, this is it. You know, our time has come. So I loved every moment. Um, it was very clear at the end. And also there was a successor, you know, both as, as Premier and um, as local member that was uh, clear to me. So I, I felt my job was done. And how do you think politics could change for the better? Do you think we shouldn't have career politicians? What way could we encourage people also to go into politics to give back more? No, I think that's part of I, I, I mean, I would love it for the next generation kind of looked at politics and said, well, you know, I'd love at some point to, to get involved or participate or use part of my career. And, you know, indeed, when I left, the, the Herald sort of came to me because I was, you know, obviously went back into banking after I said, well, what sort of message does that does that give? I mean, that's what the Herald said. And I said, well, I the message is incredibly strong. You know, I'd love for people to consider going into politics or playing a role in senior public servants' roles, using their skills, talents and expertise um, to help make our community, state, country stronger. You know, it does happen more in the US than it does does here. But that, to me, would be a great way to, to change politics. It shouldn't be a race to the bottom. We shouldn't uh, be making it harder, and it is hard to get into politics. I mean, all sides of politics struggle with this. But public servant opportunities are large and vast. I mean, there's many sort of board opportunities in government where people can come in. But if people are thinking at some stage in my career, I want to contribute in a public policy sense, you know, for good of future generations of the community, I'm part of that, that would be an amazing thing. I don't think I'm going to 
fix social media, but that's something that that's something that you could do. I think that's something you could do. I would really like to talk to you more about politics, but I really want to turn to a subject that I know is really important to you, and that's cricket. Mm-hmm. So you're chair of Cricket Australia. How would you describe the current state of sport in this country, and then how does cricket fit into that? Well, it's pretty it's pretty amazing. I, th- I think the, the the power of sport is, you know, in, in demonstration in so many ways. Um, the Matildas, you saw there. Um, that, amazing. That kind of captivated the nation, and it's a sport that's played across the world, and, you know, our mighty Matildas sort of competed with the best in the world um, on home soil. Incredible. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, that's sport. It can inspire, it can connect, it can engage. And, and even if you go back to something like cricket, um, we saw Phil Hughes that many who are listening, you know, may not uh, remember, but, you know, fantastic young cricketer um, who lost his life uh, to a bouncer. And, you know, when he lost his life, you know, it impacted across Australia. Um, there was such an outpouring of grief and it, it wasn't just a loss of an incredible talent and obviously that was a big um, part of it but there is within the DNA of the country cricket is special whether you're playing backyard at Christmas or you have kids sort of playing or heroes you've seen men and women uh, it's it's been something that's part of our psyche so it's an important part of not just day-to-day interest and leisure it's it's a part of who we are and a part of our um, country. So, you know, at the moment, it couldn't be more exciting, though, because if you look at cricket, we are connected into the largest population of the world, India, um, and all the opportunities that that brings. Um, you've seen the Prime Minister of the country kind of go around in a, I don't know what you call it, a chariot or a stadium, <laughs> which you couldn't do in Australia. You can imagine how that would go down across the MCG or SCG or any ground. But we also are now sort of going into the Olympics. We've got connections into the US sports market with the World Cup being being played there. That's a $250 billion US industry. So there is a huge capacity of commercial opportunities, playing opportunities, global opportunities, starting right in the backyard. Backyard cricket can lead you to playing for an Olympic gold. You know, backyard cricket can lead you to being front and centre of 1.4 billion people um, and playing in stadiums with a passion and fervor you, you have to experience to understand. So there are these amazing opportunities, commercial opportunities, but you know it's 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 a game um, that I think right now is on the cusp of unlike any other sport I think we've seen. What we're going to see in cricket in the next five to ten years is going to be some of the most exciting at sport. What about the future of Test cricket? I mean, how how is that going to change? You've got sort of you know, many players being lured overseas. How, how do you see that playing out? Well, I mean, Test cricket, and I know that you love your Test cricket, um, but it's to me, it, it remains the centrepiece of the game. And, you know, the broadcasting here in Australia will um, depict that. It's still the most important form of the game. And you talk to all the best players. It is the, it is the one they want to prove themselves on. It's the hardest formats against the best players. And, you know, I think the Ashes series, the most recent Ashes series, showed how compelling it can be. Um, Americans might not understand a five-day sport, but you know we were gripped until three in the morning uh, for most of July as uh, we watched those Ashes sort of unfold and the personal drama, the tensions, the stories. 
uh, you know, the battles within battles. There's so much about life in Test cricket. So, yes, that 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 will remain a centre. But you also have to understand that you know white ball cricket and the economics of that. More countries can participate because you don't need you know, all the investment to create capable first-class cricketers that can compete at Test level. So, more capacity um, in the other formats. But I do think the three formats are player role because then the, this one-day sort of format, what a compelling tournament's been. Some, it is. Some amazing matches. And it's different to D20. You've got sort of, it's an extended version. There's different dramas that come. So I think it's all three. What what the most important thing is there needs to be context to every match. As you say, there are other commercial opportunities. But if every match you're playing for your national team means that's qualification for the T20 World Cup or qualification for the the ODI World Cup or qualification of the World Test Championship, you know, then every match matters. And that's I think that's where we need to get to. That context, so when you're playing um, games, you know that they're contributing to something bigger. Um, and I think that's going to be the secret. So let's go to the number of um, schoolboys and schoolgirls, which I believe the number is soaring in terms of them learning to play cricket but why is that is it because of the Matildas or is it being sort of a long-term trend that girls are now wanting to play cricket well I mean it was the I mean the push to to make it professional and cricket led the way with that mm. and and our women's team has been most successful I mean we've had Meg Lanning's retirement so I think one of Australia's most successful sports people full stop like she's won seven world championships you know She's won a Commonwealth Games gold medal, overseen one of the most successful sporting teams of all time. I think that obviously is role modelling and inspiring. And you're right, we're seeing. I mean, that the uptick in in girls continues to thrive. I think it's about twenty percent so far in terms of registrations this year. And you know that trend has been going for six or seven years. So it's a it is undoubtedly appealing. And in the recent MOU that we did. We now have the capacity for the million-dollar sort of players. It's something that, you know, any young girl that's looking at, they've got role models, they can play something they love and they can achieve significant financial success. So all of that rolled in, together with some of the opportunities we're talking about going to the Olympics. Um, Which is fantastic news. I think that's really important, especially in terms of that boys and girls getting equal pay. I Mm. think that's... That's something that I really, really believe in. So Absolutely. I'm glad it's happening more in cricket. One of the other things I really wanted to talk to you about, which I wasn't really aware until a few years ago, is that you were where well, you were going to enter the Anglican ministry. Mm. Why is that? Like investment banking, Anglican ministry, you know, went to Canada to study theology. What what happened and why did you change your mind? <laughs> Um, I think it was a long time ago, Nick Carolyn. But yeah, no, that was part of the journey. And if you go back to what I said, that uh, what, what has guided me and driven me, that, that sense of wanting to contribute to kind of community, state, and your country was something I had, you know, right back. You know, so I started in banking, you know, was investment banking. Um, and there was something in me that, that felt I wasn't necessarily doing that. And in time, you can see that you can make big contributions, you know, through the those sectors and in, in those roles, but I, I certainly didn't feel it. So that that wrestle I had um, led me to think about, um, obviously I have a faith and 
I sort of had seen local church ministers and the impact they'd had in terms of congregations, but also broader community. There's a real connection in, you know, whether it be soup kitchens or kind of work with victims of domestic violence, there's practical work that you see a local church does. And, you know, that was compelling to me. So I thought I might leave investment banking and I'd love to become a church minister. So in that, I found this place in Canada and it was from non-denominational called Regent College. People from all around the world um, went there. People took a year off their career just to study. People who were there to become ministers and there's some that become missionaries. And it was an incredible place. So I went there and the first thing you do when you get there is you write a paper on your life and why you're here and where you're going. And have you still got that? Yes, I do. And I did. And it was fascinating. And and within it, I, I put that, um, you know, I look forward to, to being, this is how I concluded it, to look forward to being a, a minister and caring for a local con- congregation and, and the community of Powell. And the lecturer said, you know, put in pen next to that or in Australian politics. That's what he said. And um, so, oh my goodness, because I'd run. My father had been in politics. I'd seen all the downside. I thought, that's not for me. And I'd reflected in the paper that I'd kind of seen that and experienced that. And so that, that, that simple reflection enabled me to challenge myself and say, well, you know, are there other ways that I could make a contribution? And, you know, I kind of thought that being a minister was one, but maybe, maybe I should think about politics and, and how that was. So anyway, I spent a year on that, Carol. It wasn't a quick decision. Uh, and I decided, actually, I think I will. And I thought that what I could do is is use a finance background, understanding to, you know, potentially make a difference in, in a government that I was part of. So it seemed to kind of bring everything together. And, you know, to, to represent my local community in Parliament, I thought, wow, that would be amazing. You know, what a privilege that would be. So it was a long and winding road to use a soul. Yeah, it was uh, a really important town, very foundational that time. How difficult has it been to be such a public Christian, especially now as Australia is becoming more and more secular? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, we almost need our own podcast on that one. Um, we can do that. <laughs> <laughs> look, uh, it's, um, it's something I'm wrestled with. I mean, it, you know, when I became uh, the Premier, the, the City Morning Herald on the Saturday, um, the, their takeaway was that, that I had this dangerous devotion. That was the headline, dangerous devotion. And... You know, it was reflecting on on my um, Christian faith, and I was sort of amazed by that. I was a bit taken aback because I thought, "Wow, that's the that's the takeout." And you know, as uh, my chief media advisor said at the time, "Look, you know, Christianity wanting to serve people, look after people like that's kind of doesn't feel threatening to me. Maybe we need to get you to join a cult. A cult would be far more accepting." That's what he said. Anyway, there was a bit of humour, a bit of humour in the office about it. Um, but but there is interest, and there's the, the you know the church. Let's let's be honest, hasn't covered itself with glory. It hasn't dealt with many issues in sort of compassionate and caring ways, and that has hurt people, it hurt communities, and um, you know that 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 is part of the resistance to the church, um, no doubt about it. Um, but you know, I, I, as I've um, reflected on it, you know, how how do you live it out? Well. I'm currently working for, for Hammond Care, which is a, an independent Christian charity. Um, yeah, how do they live it out? Well, I'll, I'll give you one example. There was um, a 
a, a resident that we took three months ago, and uh, he was he had a fungating cancer on his face, um, really confronting, and he had dementia, um, but he didn't need to be in a hospital. He was he was um, palliating, so the sense was it was two or three months that he'd probably be alive, and, and an aged care home could take it. Aged care home after aged care home decided they wouldn't take it. We passionately believe that we'll try and care for those others. Way to a cart. There's someone in need. He deserves every uh, amount of dignity and respect than anyone else. So the team, kind of living it out, took him, cared for him, and uh, were with him. He had no family, but they were known in the hospital. But they ended up finding his sister, and they were with him in his um, sort of last hours. And like that's living a Christian faith. Mm. You know, someone in need caring compassionately, you know, living it, um, living what you believe. So, uh, you know, how should the Christian kind of live in that context? Oh, you know, that's that's the way to do it. It's, it's deeds, not necessarily words. I think that's really important to have respect as well, you know, for people who are in need. Yeah. And the fact that in terms of what you do at Ham and Care, which, which I'd really like to talk to you about, I mean, why Why did you go and work for Ham and Care? I mean, obviously you left banking to go to Ham and mm. Care. And in terms of what the Anglican Church is saying, so for example, on same-sex marriage or assisted um, or voluntary assisted dying, you know, where is Ham and Care in that debate? But first off, I'm interested why you moved to Ham and Care because it's, it's a massive role. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I thought it's likely to be the last CEO or maybe I do one more beyond it, but I wanted to do something that was purposeful and had an impact. And it's a not-for-profit? It's a not-for-profit, yeah. yeah. Which is, again, I, I, I think that not-for-profits, well, they're for purpose and need to be profitable. Then the more profitable are, the more capacity you've got to put it into the mission and what you need. And um, so there's, we're certainly pushing that. You know, look, I, I was approached and I was compelled by the story of Hammond Care. I mean, it started with um, someone called Bob Hammond 91 years ago in the middle of the Great Depression. He saw all these homeless families living around the church. He was down at St. Barnabas. He cashed in his super at the time, which was an insurance policy. He bought blocks of land out near Liverpool. And uh, it's now what called Hammondville, so it's named after him. And he got donated materials and labour and put 100 families into homes. Um, that's where it started. So he, he was all about improving the quality of life for people in need. And that's followed on ever since. Uh, the more I read the stories of what they do, and they now do specialise in complex dementia. And again, they take people that others wage or can't. They, they believe in the dignity, the independence, and the respect of absolutely everyone. And it's contagious, compelling, and powerful. Um, so I was captivated by the story, but, you know, probably the big pull was the personal one. And, you know, my mum being diagnosed, you know, with a terrible disease, degenerative, like a multi-system dystrophy, and, you know, just watched her lose function after function and really heartbreaking to, to watch. What was heartwarming was what I saw in the carers and in the sector. It was It was incredible. And the importance of aged care, the difference you can make, it was just um, so compelling to me. So having that experience, 
you know, alongside, you know, the opportunity of Hemicare. And I thought, wow, I can kind of use everything I've done in this role to try and help Hemicare and the sector and the care workers. So it became a very easy decision. You know, on those bigger debates, which, you, which you've got to look, it, it won't surprise. I mean, in terms of voluntary assisted die, there you know, there's a deep belief that good palliative care, you know, can provide the best possible opportunity for everyone. And, you know, I know that's not what everyone thinks and believes, but that's, you know, we believe that. Um, and, you know, we'll do everything possible. Uh, many experts, you know, in the palliative care space, you know, believe that with that sort of care, you can overcome some of the resistance. And, you know, some of the best moments come in those last days and weeks. And certainly, you know, with my mum, my mum was in a terrible position physically, really hard to watch, but she connected in personal and powerful ways, you know, in the, in the last few weeks that will stay with us uh, forever. So that um, means, though, as an organisation, it's still an option for people. So, you know, we will do everything we can. You know, obviously, we're not supportive. We wouldn't undertake the activity ourselves. But if there are those in our care that that's what they choose, well, we'll sort of help and facilitate and if our staff want to be there with you know those um, residents or patients or, or clients we'll, we'll support that so yeah I think that's that's a balance I mean we we don't support it we think there are other means but if people choose it I mean for us it's all about you know the individual how can we just be as compassionate if they're within us and it doesn't make sense to move them well we'll, we'll you know try and facilitate it Thank you very much for sharing that about your mother. I mean, one of the other areas that you've always spoken about is youth at risk. And as chair of Future Generation Australia, which is obviously we're giving money to not-profits youth at risk, why is this close to your heart and how do you, help, how do you think you can help more? Yeah, and it's one, of the, it's one of the great things of politics, actually, or being an MP or being in government. You, you see so many organisations doing, doing incredible work and I was the shadow youth affairs minister, and that's kind of connected into me to some organisations that deal with you know, youth at risk. So I did work with youth um, off the streets, but individual organisations, um, Southern Youth and Family Services, I'm still to this day uh, an ambassador. And, you know, they'll have crisis accommodation and then supported accommodation and then independent accommodation, and they, they go through a cycle. and. You know, when they're there, you know, they give them the capacity to you know, obviously all the support they need, that, but they'll encourage them in terms of education, either finishing high school or a chance to do a TAFE and, you know, opportunity to employment. You know, they'll often take them to job interviews. I mean, it's amazing some, some of the work they do and to see them become independent. So, yeah, that work can't help. You're not human if you can't see that and meet some of these incredible youths and some of the challenges they've had. Um, you know, I, I had the, the privilege and I had a couple of years where I took eight kids who were in, they'd had come through crisis, they were in supported and they wanted to lift them up to independence and through four different kind of youth providers and we got two two youth from each of them and I took them on a, on a hike. Um, so when I was treasurer and premier, I did it. I did it for a week, and uh, I got eight mentors, and we went up and hiked to the Lara Pinta. I wanted to take them somewhere beautiful because I didn't think that, you know, that seen much beauty in their life. And yeah, well, 
all types of amazing people, people like Lane Beachley and Gail Kelly and Coopin Gilly, um, Mark Donaldson, who's at DC, a whole range of different people, different skills. And, you know, we would walk and talk with, with the kids and we'd sit around campfires and we'd get great stories from some of the mentors. But every single one of the mentors, their lives were changed because of what we heard from those kids and the resilience from those kids um, and what they'd overcome. And, you know, some still in contact today um, from, from those tides. But it, it's that tangible experience and hearing their voices and what they've been through and knowing the services. Um, I know that providing funding into these sort of organisations, I've seen the tangible difference. And, you know, I talk about country and community. Well, we're stronger if we give every kid the same opportunities. And those that aren't getting in, if we can lift them up and support them, uh, well, that's an incredibly important thing to do. I'm very much in agreement with you there. So obviously it's helping their mental health as well to do something like that. But how how do you take care of your mental health? Because you've had some enormously stressful jobs. I mean, even recently with Hammond Care, with everything that's been happening so many of the regions, what do you do to ca- take care of yourself and, and would you seek help as well? Yeah, well, and, and so both. I mean, I um, certainly think, you know, any any leader has to sort of plan their week where they have things that they enjoy doing and take stress off. So for me, surfing, sort of gym, running, well, running has been taken off the agenda a bit because my knees are no longer, I've smashed them. And they look pretty good, but that but that sort of activity, I often have all types of things. I was thinking about weighing me down. You go for a sort of eight ten kilometer run, and at the end of it, you feel that the stress has gone. Similarly, jumping into the ocean uh, for a surf, that first duck dive, you know, it's almost like it washes over you. And so, those sort of disciplines, I think, are really important. I also talk about the need um, to being not just doing what you love and those stress release activities, but also being with who you love. And, you know, any week, date night was always a staple for me and date date night tonight um, remains, you know, all the way through being premier, but every role, um, you know, there's a time of week where it's just my wife and I and uh, we connect. um, Sometimes there's constructive feedback, um, but... (laughs) Constructive uh, criticism. Exactly. Well, well no, that's generally, generally what it is. So, so that's that's important. But um, but sometimes that's not enough. And you know, I sort of was there during the siege and spoke a little bit about this. That um, you know, that impacted me profoundly and still does. And I'd never dealt with it in any way professionally. But um, you know, a few years ago and a few years after leaving politics, you know, I finally did. And you know, my mum lesser at the time I remember it now if I, I can see it um, talking to me um, because she she had trouble talking and she I could see it in her eyes um, and she she used to she used to type out um, you know see a counselor and uh, and she looked at me and I and I could see it and I, and I said yes yes and uh, and I didn't um, at the time but yeah, I finally did, and it was incredibly helpful. Um, you know, there are things that I'd built up and, you know, repressed and, you know, hadn't um, really had any avenue to talk about or engage with, and um, it was it was very helpful. So, 
like I think we have to be open. My my wife had um, postnatal depression, and you know when she had it finally called out, and when she finally got some help with it, it was amazing. And you know, when when I was premier, she spoke a little bit about that, and people found that encouraging because it's it's often something you can't talk about. And I think you know sort of happily talk about a, a broken leg, um, but you know we don't in our in terms of our mental health. And I think um, you know the more we're open about that, and also being aware that. You know, there are times that are really tough, and I think long COVID is a, is a good example. The longer-term impacts of COVID, we're, we're in essence through it. Um, but, you know, that socialisation, social isolate, isolation, and, the, you know, some of the broader impacts, you know, those families and people that made sacrifices that lost loved ones and unable to be there, there's lots and lots that needs to work through. So the more we're open about it and talk about it, I think the stronger will be. I think that's really important. I mean, you've seen so many different parts of our society. I mean, what concerns you most? And finally, maybe I could ask a question, what gives you hope? In simple, what concerns me most about society? Oh, goodness. I, I started the ladder. I, I always have, you know, looked at looked at hope. And, you know, I think we we don't spend enough time, you know, organizationally, individually you know, actually, you know, dreaming and aspiring. And, you know, when I look at um, Australia, there's often in terms of media and the discourse, just constant reflections on, you know, what we're not doing, you know, what governments are doing wrong, um, you know, what corporates are doing wrong. And, you know, all true, likely, um, but you know, where is the incredible celebration of who we are? Those those youth um, services that's talking about. I mean, there's a a group of heroes. Um, you know, right now, I mean, I've got care workers all across the country that are dealing with people with complex dementia, and they're lifting them up and holding them up and telling them that they matter, um, trying to take away any pain try to give them dignity, respect, uphold their stories. Those youth services are giving kids that have been on the street since they were 12 a chance to go to school, get an education, get a job, to live their own lives. And I know, know some of those stories. Um, we, we don't celebrate our volunteers. Um, you know, my local cricket club, we had this this incredible manager that became the, the volunteer of the year. He has put in 40 years service. He's looked after kids for multiple generations um you know that's who we are you know this is incredible we talk about volunteerhood we talk about mainships but there is so much good you know in community and country i mean i connected into children's hospices and yeah you know, what our nurses do there and what our volunteers do there. um so you know for me that's one of the privileges i've had kind of being in political life I've seen it and it's not often in the media it's not often on the radio or TV but it is there there are incredible people and, and Australia is 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 made up of them so yes there are things that are wrong and yes there's concerns you know in geopolitical sense but we will be okay because of because of who we are and you know when I look at those um, volunteers like all of them it was just a, it's a privilege to meet them to know them still and 
you know, that gives me hope. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. Thank you very much for joining me today. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Please join the Future Generation of Family, Australia's first listed investment companies to provide investment and social returns. We have given more than $75 million to Australian not-for-profit organisation, something we and our shareholders are incredibly proud of. Be part of this and gain investment returns while contributing to improving the lives of young Australians. For more information about Future Generation, visit the website www.futuregeninvest.com.au. Thank you.